G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Why do you reckon, so we've got this passage, John 12, in front of us. Why did so few Jews believe in Jesus? I mean, that's the conundrum, isn't it? That, that seems, it is, that, that is the startling thing about John chapter 12. Um, in his day, why was the tide so much against Jesus? Uh, what does that say about Jesus? <laughs> uh, how does that reflect on believers or, or on the credibility of our faith, even today, if they back then didn't seem to believe in him? Um, How does it reflect on God Himself? If indeed it's His plan of salvation, has it failed? Has He proved feeble? Was it a very good plan after all? Has God met His match in mankind or at least particularly in the the Jewish obstinacy, you know, the, the opposition, the unbelief of the Jewish people in the day of Jesus? Today's passage, John 12, at least from uh, the last section of it there, is troubling, I reckon, viewed through that lens. But by way of introduction, I'd like to frame it a little bit more broadly. I'd like to frame it a little bit more broadly. I'd like to set the question in this broader context, namely, the context of the rise of Christianity just shortly after this time after the life and death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus. See, John's Gospel only takes us so far, doesn't it? It only takes us, uh, you know, through his life and and death and resurrection, peaks ahead to his ascension to heaven. Um, And right now, we're at a hinge in John's Gospel, a hinge, as I've said over the last couple of weeks. This section basically concludes Jesus' public ministry. So, after this, we have Jesus eating privately, Uh, speaking privately, teaching privately, uh, praying privately with his disciples. Okay, so we're at a hinge point in John's presentation of Jesus um, at the moment, but just beyond the horizon of John, the Christian movement absolutely rockets away. Okay, so I just want to set it in that broader context. The Christian movement rockets away. I wonder if you've got the sense of the scale of this, actually. Um, so, Rodney Stark, this is Rodney Stark, he's a, a sociologist and historian. Um, he authored this book called The Rise of Christianity. I'd like to share this a little bit with you. He says, all questions concerning the rise of Christianity are one. How was it done? How did a tiny, obscure, messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? That is a pretty good question, isn't it? Uh, so Stark, he's really looking at that, that period from, uh, well, where we are in John's Gospel, right up to about the year 350, the year 350 thereabouts. And we've got to get this, we're talking from practically nothing to a majority position in the Roman Empire, the great Roman Empire, dislodged classical paganism. That's where Christianity goes from these disappointing beginnings in John chapter 12, for a starting number, says Stark. So, where do we start? For a starting number, Acts chapter 1 suggests that several months after the crucifixion, there were 120 Christians. 120. That's a vulnerable little movement. That's for a starting number. Now, how how much bigger did it get? 
Think about this. Let's, so Stark winds the clock forward. Now, he's a sociologist. That's his job. And he's being careful. He's being deliberate. He's being fairly conservative in his sociology. But get this, drawing on what we know of the Roman Empire, drawing on what we know of its cities and their population and the, the population of Christians within those cities and the growth that we, uh, that we seem to know of, by the year 300 and 350, what was the ending number? So from 120 the starting number, what was the ending number? It was from 120 believers to 33,882,008, if the statistical methods, you know, hold up to that level of specificity. 33,882,008. That is, did you have that sense of scale? That is amazing, isn't it? So we're talking from this nothing, this tiny, this 120 Christians, and that's it in the entire world, to the majority of the Roman Empire in 300, well, it's less than 350 years, in like 310, 320 years. That is a staggering growth curve. It makes my prayers for revival in Hobart seem piddling, doesn't it? It makes my prayers for, it just lack imagination when I think about that kind of growth. That is amazing. Now, I won't go into the detail now. If sociology is your thing, it's a great read. It's a real page turner. The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. Really fascinating stuff. Lessons for, for our church and indeed the modern church. Uh, but just notice this. There's an important plank in Stark's case as to how it happened. How? He reckons it involved a lot of Jews a lot of Jews, or at least um, converts to Judaism, so maybe not ethnically Jewish people, but converts, or at least sympathisers with Judaism. He reckons it involved a lot, a lot of them, obviously not all of them. Heaps of them came to embrace Jesus. And so I'm wondering, as we come to John chapter 12, right at the start of that curve, even back before the 120, I wonder if part of the reason that John included this section might perhaps have been precisely because Jews of his day, of John's day, were asking this question, why did so few of us follow Jesus? Does that say something grim about Jesus? Or does it say something grim about us? Does it shine a light on our spiritual state or on God's ability or Christ's credibility or somehow on the glory of God even or what? Uh, can we pray together as we begin? Father in heaven, we ask today that you would illumine both this passage of Scripture to us, but also illumine our hearts today, please, because all of us, we like to be in the majority and we like to be not only right, but we like to be seen to be right. We desire to believe what's true, but for everyone to know that we've got the truth and that we believe it and that we live by it. And so, Father, we confess that there is pride bound up in there. We care very much and perhaps too much for the, the opinions of men and women, of peers, of colleagues, people we admire, people who have power over us. But, Father, this passage illustrates to us that there is a burden on each of us to plumb the depths of what is true and what is false and to not simply go with the majority or with the herd. Lord God, may we see Christ more clearly this morning, please, we ask, and may we respond as we ought, be that popular or not. Amen. 
Uh, now, today, today, of course, we don't feel that conundrum anywhere nearly so acutely, do we? It's a sort of important philosophical question, but we don't feel it, uh, not in the way that they must have back then. After centuries of Christian history, uh, writes Leon Morris, the late Aussie theologian, after centuries of Christian history, during which the church has been almost exclusively Gentile, that is, you know, how many Jewish Christians do you even know? Probably not many. We have come to accept it as quite normal that there should be very few Jews in the church. But this is not the way it seemed to the men of the New Testament. For them, the Jews were the people of God and Jesus was the Messiah of Jewish expectation. The Jews, accordingly, ought to have welcomed him. And so, as Jesus' public ministry draws to a close... It does so and frankly, a downer. When, uh, verse 36, halfway through of John chapter 12, when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. And I've got four questions for us today. Number one, should the unbelief of the Jews rock our faith? in Jesus. Should the Jewish rejection of Jesus rock our faith? Take a look at John's angle here. Keep reading with me from verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their hearts and de- uh, sorry eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. I'm actually going to ask us to do a little bit of hard work here, a little bit of digging, because I think Isaiah, or those quotes that John takes from Isaiah, they take a little bit of work to figure out they're not entirely straightforward. Why, what is John saying there in quoting Isaiah? I want us to do a little bit of hard work. Uh, we're at the start of the sermon, not the end, so hopefully we've got more energy now than we do in 15 minutes' time. Uh, would you please um, uh, turn back with me to Isaiah, if you've got it in your... It'll come up on the screen, but if you've got it in your, um, in your hands, please do that. There are two quotes, both from Isaiah, that John takes there. So keep your hand in, John. But they're saying slightly different things, aren't they? And they are from very different parts of Isaiah's life. So I'm going to ask us to do this legwork. Would you would you keep one hand in John's gospel? Is it coming up on the screen, Jim? Or yeah, it is. Good, good, good. Um, uh, keep a hand in John's gospel. Come with me to the first one. The first one, which seems to be basically saying, "Look, no one seems to believe us, God. That's just the way it is. No one seems to believe us." And so we'll pick it up from Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. Take a look there. This introduces the topic for us. The topic of what Isaiah is promising, prophesying in the name of God. See, my servant, that's the topic, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So Isaiah, back in the time around 700 BC, is announcing to Israel this this coming servant, this saviour kind of character for the people of God, for the people of Israel, admittedly a very different time in their history, God is sending a servant and he's going to be great, he's going to be wonderful, he'll act wisely, will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. But what kind of reception will even that servant receive? So keep reading with me, verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, 
Speaking in the past tense, but, but it's still looking forward to this coming of this character. Many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. His form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom is the arm of the Lord being revealed? He grew up, speaking about the servant, before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Yeah. Admittedly, there's some pictorial kind of language in there, but it is at best a mixed message, isn't it? On the one hand, there seem to be these kings who are going, oh yeah, okay, I see now. But on the other, there is this gross misunderstanding, even this despising, this rejecting of this coming servant of the Lord. And it's a prophecy, we take it to be about Jesus and certainly if you were to read on, I won't do that right now, uh, but if you were to read on, you'd see very clearly, wow, this is absolutely about Jesus, the one who died, who was smitten uh, for us, who carried our infirmities, um, who basically went to the cross for us. It's about Jesus, but it is such a mixed message, isn't it? For now, if you had had expected that when God came to town, that everyone was going to embrace him, everyone would get it, everyone would see him and be delighted and embrace him and think, this is wonderful. No, O Jewish reader of John's Gospel, no, you need to go back and read Isaiah because that has never been the message, that has never been what you ought to expect and so at least for a preliminary answer for us, should the unbelief of the Jews in Jesus' day rock our faith? No, strangely, it should confirm our faith strengthen our faith. Why? Because it's exactly what God had been promising and expecting and prophesying. But come back with me a little farther. So that was the first of uh, John's two quotes from Isaiah. That was the first one. What about the second? Come back with me to Isaiah chapter 6 now. Isaiah chapter 6. Come back with me there. Isaiah 6. Isaiah sees quite literally, as Gary read it to us before, a vision of God's glory. (laughs) In fact, John says it's Jesus' glory, which kind of messes with us a little bit because we go, hang on a sec, Jesus wasn't even man at that point. We don't call him Jesus. We don't call God the Son, Jesus, before he became a baby in the stable with Mary and all the rest. What's going on? Well, did he get a a vision of the future or something? I don't know. I suppose it doesn't matter entirely. Nevertheless, he has some kind of revelation and God sends poor Isaiah on this. It's this fool's errand almost, isn't it? Um, uh, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? In Isaiah 6 verse 8, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I, that is Isaiah, said, here am I, send me. Then the Lord said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Yeah. The, the, the wording's slightly different in John, I suppose, but it's pretty clear. He's talking about the same passage. 
He's just adapted it maybe so that we can read it, so it flows a little bit better in his text. But what do you make of this? Make their hearts calloused, their eyes blind, their ears dull. Question number two is, doesn't that say something rather unflattering about God? Uh, now, I'm going to risk a, um, what might seem an unsatisfying answer to some of you. And if this kind of messes with you, please, please come and chat with me about it afterwards because this is worthy of a whole sermon or a series of sermons. I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to risk an unsatisfying answer, but I want you to know, come and chase me about it afterwards if you want to chase this down, if you want to pursue this more. But for now, I just want to set it in the context of John's Gospel. We've been in John's Gospel for weeks now. And I want, you to, I want to ask the question, why do you reckon John is laying this before us now? Is it to make God look the fool? Hardly. <laughs> that hasn't been John's agenda at all. It can't be to make God look the fool. Or is it to bolster would-be believers with the comfort that even the most blatant, the most hostile, the most aggressive, the most nasty, the opposition that would send Jesus to the cross, ultimately lies within the deliberate plan of God's Messiah's saving work? Is it to bolster belief rather than undermine it? Put that another way. Think about John's opponents, or Jesus' opponents rather, in John's presentation so far. Like the ones in verse 37, do you remember them? Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Let me ask you, Does John give the least impression that these are nothing but pawns in God's hands? That they're mere robots, unreasoning, incapable of responsible action, somehow somehow bullied by God into their unbelief? Does John give that impression at all? Has he at all in his presentation of Jesus' enemies? I don't think we can say that at all. John isn't, isn't trying to strip these opponents of their humanity or their responsibility. No, he's trying to show that nothing, not even hard-headed, nasty, evil opposition to Jesus is beyond the power of God in his saving plan. It is to comfort believers, do you see? Sit tight, Christian, as you are pushed around by these very same guys. Do you see the logic? Sit tight, Christian, as you confront the same kind of evil, the same kind of uh, um, uh, uh, belligerent um, opposition and unbelief in the world. God has not been overcome, not in Isaiah's day, not in your day, John's believers, not now, Christian. God is not overcome by opposition. Thirdly then, but wait, because that means that even though I believe the truth, I'm still going to be bullied for it and perhaps in a minority even though I believe the truth in the plan of God, I'm going to look the fool. Keep reading John's Gospel with me uh, from verse 42 now. Is there a glimmer of hope here? Verse 42, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise from men more than praise from God. I reckon there's the rub for us in this passage. In those couple of verses, there's the rub for us today. Am I right? It is that climate, that climate of unbelief that wears us down, that discourages us. We'll turn on the telly, there it is. 
that climate of unbelief. We go to the pub with our mates, there it is. It's that climate of unbelief that wears us down one way or another. Uh, I think I quoted this to us recently, but I think it is so helpful just to, to name it. So Ed Welch, Christian psychologist, uh, counsellor, uh, he names what it is that we are chasing after in our hearts. Sometimes he says, sometimes we would prefer to die for Jesus than to live for him. If someone had the power to kill us for our profession of faith, I imagine that most Christians would say, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, even if it meant death. However, if making a decision for Jesus means that we might spend years being unpopular, ignored, poor or criticised, then there are masses of Christians who are temporarily putting their faith on the shelf. In other words, he says, kill me, but don't keep me from being liked, appreciated or respected. That's the conundrum, I reckon of being a Christian in the modern world very often. I can't avoid the world. I can't. I must not. I cannot live in a Christian ghetto. The good news of Jesus, it is good news for everyone. No, I cannot keep it to myself. We must never keep the gospel just to ourselves. But as soon as we go out, well, what then? Especially if we're surrounded by it at school or at uni, among colleagues, perhaps even in our families, many of us. Now, our problem, by and large, is the social pressure. Not, not so much not to be a Christian, but just to pipe down Christian. So, if you've started uni this year, I want you to take heart from this passage. Or if you've started at a new school this year, perhaps moved from a Christian school to a non-Christian school, or even within the school that you've been at for years, you're just flowing with a different crowd this year and it feels different... In the plan of God, I want you to know hostility, unbelief, even opposition, you're not doing Christianity wrong when you face that stuff, brother or sister. God hasn't forgotten you, Christian. In fact, I want to say your experience is normal looking at Christianity down the ages. You're not doing it wrong. God hasn't forgotten you. Maybe you're picked on not so much for believing at all, but maybe you cop it when you open your mouth on some of the issues, some of the corollaries of your faith, some of the things that, that are related to it, not core to the faith, but uh, are related to it in that less direct way, caring for the unborn, perhaps your views on whether marriage should be redefined or something, waiting until you get married to sleep with your girlfriend. I just want to say it is a strange and it is a rare thing for a Christian to make it through life being universally liked, appreciated and respected. That's a rarity. In fact, I don't think I've seen it. Fear not, Christian. But lastly, and this I think is the real eye-opener of this passage, how, last question, how does opposition enhance our view of Jesus, because I think it does, and I think that's how this passage finishes. How does opposition in the plan of God, even hardness of heart, even it's, it, it seems to be kind of terminal, in, as, in, as impermanent in that sense within this age, how does opposition enhance our view, of, our view of Jesus, or even our view of the glory of Christ? And my point is simply this, in God's plan, the world would be opposed, would be hardened, would reject the Messiah when he came, despising this coming saviour and that, that is the world that he knowingly, deliberately, lovingly came to save, do you see? 
Uh, and this uh, last couple of paragraphs here is somewhat messy, um, I think, but just notice the emphasis on salvation rather than judgment, on light even though the world is dark. I'll just read those, those closing words of Jesus from his public ministry there, John chapter 12, verse 44, please read with me, then Jesus cried out, when a man believes in me, he doesn't believe in me only, but in the one who sent me, referring to God the Father. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but doesn't keep them, I don't judge him. For I didn't come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and doesn't accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I didn't speak of my own accord. But the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the kind of God and the kind of guy who would come into a world for us, knowing that this world would reject him and despise him, culminating in in his going to the cross. Jesus came knowing all that. He'd come to a dark world that doesn't want a bar of his light. He would come not really to judge, but to save. That's the God that he shows to the world. That's the God in heaven that he puts on display in his very life, even in his coming to us. That is the character of the Christ in whom we believe. And so my closing question as we move toward a conclusion this morning is do we reflect his character among unbelievers today? So Leon Morris, I quoted him before, uh, Morris says, Jesus stooped to a position where men might and where men did reject him. And so my question is, as Christians, as Christ's followers, as people who delight in the glory of Jesus, if he came to a position where he might and was rejected, do we, as his followers in the world? Or are we pretty good at making sure that we're never in a position to be rejected for Jesus? Brothers and sisters, let us be okay, even quick to admit that we are very much a part of this world, that we need saving from it. Within our hearts lies the same spirit of unbelief and many of us can attest to this for many years of our lives before we came to Christ. Within our hearts and our lives lies the very same spirit of unbelief lurking. God hasn't saved us because we're different from the world. He has saved us to to, to be different in the world. Let us be okay with copying it for the name of Christ, not because we're thick-skinned and can't feel the pain. We aren't and we do. But he wasn't and he did, if you take my meaning. He wasn't thick-skinned. He bled and he very much felt the pain. No, let us uh, be okay with copying it for the name of Christ, not because we're thick-skinned and can't feel the pain, but because the salvation of our world depends on it, depends on seeing Jesus, not on seeing us. And let us therefore respond to unbelief and hostility, animosity, as our Lord Jesus did, responding to curses with kindness, responding to antagonism, animosity with appreciation, responding to hurts with helps, 
responding to our fallen world with the faithful words that point them again and again to Jesus. Verse 46, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Can I lead us in prayer? Father, so often as we think about the glory of Jesus, we want to think about winning. We want to think about the bright end. We want to think about the future and everything set right. But Father, when we look at the gospel stories again and again, we see the glory of Jesus in his humility, in what he came to display of God in a fallen world and in what it took to turn the future of this world around to that bright and happy and wonderful and triumphant future. But dear God, we still live in this fallen world. And so, Father, we pray, would you please work in us a delight in living like Jesus for his sake in this world. And Lord God, we think about what that might entail. We think about how that might expose us to criticism. We think about opening our mouths, perhaps in the lunchroom at work or with mates at uni or you know, taking a stand in some this or that area of behaviour. And Father, it's a bit frightening. But we pray that by the work of your Holy Spirit that you'd enable us to stand for Jesus. Thank you that you've forgiven us in Christ for the countless times where we haven't done that. Uh, Thank you that in Jesus we see this lived out in perfection where in our own lives we look back and see, yeah pretty mottled efforts. Um, Father, thank you for your mercy to us. But Father, thank you as well that we walk this road together and so we pray that we might encourage one another, spur one another on, that when we fall down, we'd be there to help one another back up and not just to point and laugh and snicker. Dear God, may we though, as well as all that being together and with the gospel, resting on the Lord Jesus, May we be bold to take the gospel out to the world, not shrinking into a a ghetto, uh, but bold, Father, as we take this good news that is good news for everyone to the world around us. Be with us in that, we pray. Be with us in that this week. We pray it for Christ's glory. Amen.